The scripture for today is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness in all trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. I still remember hearing those words as a seventh grader watching what would become in that decade the highest grossing animated movie in history, The Lion King. Don't know what I'm talking about. Remember who you are. Yes, four of you saw it. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> It was the words of Mufasa, the king of, of Pride Land. Of course, he was killed by his brother Scar. His cub, then named Simba, would grow up to be uh, a, a big lion, I guess. You know, what are they called? They get older lions? Yeah, one of those. Um, and he believes that he killed his father, and so he runs away from home. And he's having this identity crisis moment and he encounters the baboon priest monkey Rafiki, remember? And Simba asks Rafiki, who are you? And, Sim, and, and Rafiki says, that's not the question. The question is, who are you? Remember that? And Simba goes, I have no clue who I am. And then fast forward, he sees his dead father in the clouds, Mufasa, speaking to him, and only in the way James Earl Jones can actually say it, it's just this deep, deep voice that goes, Simba, you have forgotten who you are. Right? I, should, I should be doing Mufasa's voice. I know that's, that's another sermon, guys. Um, and he ends off by just repeating that line over and over. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. It's interesting. Because hearing that phrase, remember who you are, it's easy to just kind of push that off to the side. But the truth is, all of us have had or having or will have that Simba moment. 
this moment in our life where we are on this journey to figure out who we are, to make sense of our identity, to to answer the question, what defines me? What is at the core that governs me? Who am I? And on this journey, we begin to say things like this, if I only was this, or if I only had this, or if I became this, then that would be me walking into who I am. I struggled with that question a lot because I grew up in, for those of you who know, I, I talk about this, I grew up in, a, in an Indian home. And so growing up in an Indian-American home, you had two sides of the coin trying to define for you how you are to find who you are, how you are to seek out this question of identity and what is it. On one side, I would hear the eastern part of my heritage say, if you want to know who you are, if you want to find out your identity, then look to those who have walked before you. And what is the path those before me walked? It was the path of family and community. And so if you want to find out who you are, Stan, this is how you do that. Ask this simple question. The who are you is defined by... What is most important to you? And what is most important to you? Family. So do what is best for family. Do what is best for your community. And so I grow up defining myself as son, as brother, and get married, and I would become a husband and a child. And that is what anchored my identity. And so every decision I would make was pivoted by It was hard. What is best for family? What is best for community? It was hard because my Indianness would be fighting against my Americanness. And this is what my Americanness would tell me. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. Don't let anyone define you by what you should do based on their best interests. Listen, what do you love most? What drives you? What excites you? Look within yourself and you go and figure it out. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. You have to figure it out yourself. And that was hard because one side was very specific and the other side gave me no regulations to follow. And you might be sitting there hearing the East and the West as if they're counter, as if they oppose each other at their core. And and yeah, they do, but being someone that tried to follow both, this is what I realized, that whether you grew up in such a mindset of let community define you, or you grew up in the mindset of you should define yourself, I've come to realize that both landed me at the same place. That when faced with the storms of life, neither stood the test. At the age of 18 and 21 and 25 and 30, I would have this moment of crisis. 
that when I would follow one path or the other, I still found myself asking, who am I? The reason why that question is so important because it has everything to do with the series we are in and with the text we just read. You see, the words we read this morning or were read for us by Sam this morning were written by this man by the name of Paul. That wasn't his birth name. He was actually called Saul. He was a a religious lawyer, an educated man whose one primary goal was killing Christians. And in the middle of his, his agenda of how to make Christianity dwindle in size through mass executions, we see he has an encounter with Jesus. And this conversion takes place. And he goes from being Saul to Paul. And when he writes these words, he is actually a missionary sitting in prison about to die. He's gone on a few missionary journeys, and on his second missionary journey, he would enter a city called Ephesus, which is located in Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. And in this city, he decides to go to this major city in the Empire of Rome. And if you want to know anything about Ephesus, the best way I can describe Ephesus as a city is New York. And why can I say that? Because there were two things that put Ephesus on the map. There was a major highway that passed through it, and there was a major port that docked right at the, at the, at the riverbanks of Ephesus. And so Ephesus got on the map as one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire because in order to get through other parts of the empire, you had to pass through Ephesus. And if you wanted to transport goods in commerce, you had to dock at Ephesus' port. And so naturally, Ephesus became the city of trade. It became the city of commerce. It became the city that you wanted to go to to make it. In other words, it's where the jobs were. It's where you would want to build your resume. Now, it's not just trade and commerce that put Ephesus on the map, but it was a center of spirituality. The goddess Diana or uh, 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 Artemis, the goddess Diana of what the Greek name is Diana or Artemis, what the Romans would call her, which is the sister of Apollo, was the center figure goddess of the city, and there was a massive temple constructed in her honor. And so we read in the book of Acts that there were hundreds, thousands of people who would go to worship this goddess. Now, here you have a a city center of trade and commerce and spirituality, but because they had a large temple there, and the temple was sacred, that's where the Caesars kept their money. And so now you didn't just have a place of seeking out who God is, but you had one of the largest banks in Rome, in the city of Ephesus. So this is what you have. A banking, trading, commerce, education, arts, spiritual center. It was in New York. And in that city you find people moving from everywhere, seeking out one of few things. A job, advancement, money, God, to find themselves. 
And this man named Paul would go to that city and plant these churches there. Paul was short and he was bald, making no comparisons, but Paul was bald and he was short and he was in what we would call a New York-like city. Maybe he planted a church, and I'm just going to guess, maybe something called a gallery, made up of people from everywhere. He's in the city, and this is what we know about the audience of the church based on the letter he writes. They are some messed up people. They are trying to make sense, just trying to survive in Ephesus. They are people who are questioning whether God even accepts them. They are struggling with sex, with this idea of marriage, with living in community, with advancing career. And Paul goes in to give them a solution. And you've got to ask, Paul being raised in an Eastern culture, what is the solution he offers? And naturally you would think he would go to them and say, listen, if you want to figure out who you are, this is where you've got to land. You've got to land in asking the question, what is important for your community? But he doesn't do that. In the, in the middle of an audience that is confused about what they're supposed to do, who they are, he doesn't champion community and family as a sense of identity, and he doesn't swing the other way and say, look within yourself. He doesn't say that. Find out by looking within. That's where the solution is. Instead, nine times in the four, 14 verses we read, 27 times in the six chapters of this letter, over 80 times in the New Testament, he will argue, if you want to find out who you are, it's not in the anchor of the East or the anchor of the West. Your anchor should be. This entire letter is Paul's Mufasa to Simba. Hear me. Remember who you are. That's the heart of this letter. His entire goal was not to beat them up over the head and say, shame on you for falling into sin. Or how could you live like... It wasn't that, but it was simple. A father pleading with his spiritual kids, listen, he's saying to them, don't forget who you are. Remember who you are, why. Alan Hurst, missiologist, puts it best. This is his words. Everyone has a God in the sense that everyone puts something first in one's life, money, power, prestige, self, career, love, and so forth. There must be something in your life that operates as your source of meaning and strength, something that you regard at least implicitly, as the supreme power of your life. Translation, all of us at this moment has something that defines us. And so when we go through this identity crisis, when we go through this moment in a life of figuring out who are we and what are we, we will ping to one of two areas, through secularism or through moral religion. 
will either try to find hope in a city that says it's in your LinkedIn profile, it's in your name, it's in your career, it's in your looks, or your swing the other way where I fell into both camps. Listen, it's how good you live and the status of your life. And we find ourselves falling into both. But if you've done that, this is what you realize. When you hang the hat of your soul on your career, on your looks, and on your moral goodness, this is what, it end, this is what ends up happening. It's like building a gorgeous beach house without a foundation by the waters right before the storm hits. It looks good, it feels great, everything is awesome. You can invite your friends and show off your scene, you show off your view, but give it time that when the storm comes, the house comes tumbling down. And this is what Paul says, listen, where you anchor your soul matters. Remember who you are, Christian. You are not defined by your career because when the storm comes and you throw your career, it drowns. And when your paycheck comes and you throw it at the storm, it drowns. And when you're lucky to get married and you throw your spouse at the storm, they will drown. But Paul says, when you throw Christ at the storm, He not only comes out alive, but he walks on your water. In Christ, remember your position in Christ. Remember the one who anchors your soul. Remember where your worth comes from. Listen, remember that your identity is rooted in the lover of your soul, the creator who is awesome, the one who has saved you, and not just in the one who is awesome, but in the one who calls you awesome, in the one who calls you by name. Remember who you are in Christ, that your worth is not defined by what is temporal, but what is eternal. That's the goal of this series. For the next few weeks, six weeks, we're just going to be opening up this letter, asking the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? How can we anchor our identity on that? And how does that practically change us? That's it. In a city like New York, What does it mean to remember that we are in Christ? And how does that practically change us? So every week, we're going to take a look at what it means to be in Christ in the words of the Apostle Paul. And if you are a Christian this morning, this is where my prayer is, that at the end of this, you would anchor your identity even deeper in the one you've trusted as the Savior of your soul. The the one you sing to, the one you pray to, the one you join in community for, that this morning you would understand that and it would transform the basic functionings of our life. And so we begin. Ephesians 1, verse 1 and verse 2. And we're just going to hang out at those two verses this morning. 
That doesn't mean we're going to take 90 weeks to finish this book. I promise you in six weeks we're going to be done. It's not a verse-by-verse study completely of this book, but just asking the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? If you have your Bibles, take a look. Verse 1, this is Paul's words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Pause for a moment. This is just sidebar. He says, I am who I am because God has willed it for me to be just that. And that should excite some of you this morning because this is what he's saying. Even if I wanted to do something else, I am an apostle. My heart burns. I am excited. What I am doing is because God has willed it for me. And can I just encourage you this morning? Your passions, your desires, your bent, the things that you love, the things that you find yourself being at odds with others, sometimes this is what God is saying. I have put you in this city by my will. And I have made you the person you are by my will. Don't question it. For those of you that love the arts, the guy talking to you has no clue why you love the arts. But he says, you are that person by my will. For those of you that love crunching numbers, the guy talking to you this morning can't add for his life. But this is what the text is saying. You crunch numbers the way you crunch because by my will. Don't sell yourself short. Keep moving. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Stopping there. This is the sermon. What does it mean to be in Christ the first week? This is where we're going to hang out. To be in Christ means You are a saint. I'm going to let that sink in for just a moment. Let it just sink in. You are a saint. Last night I was not a saint. The thoughts in my mind don't make me think like a saint. But I'm going to to ask you to ignore all of that this morning and hear, hear the words of the pastor for pastors, the Apostle Paul, In Christ, you are a saint. He's speaking to a varied audience, young and old, new Christian and old Christian, people who are struggling and people who've made it, people who've moved into the city to figure out their future, and he's looking at all of them, doesn't single out a few of the leaders, But he looks to all of them and he says to the saints in Ephesus. Just so you might be thinking, well, maybe in the Greek, the word saint meant something else. No, 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 no. It means exactly what you think it means to the holy, to the consecrated, to the perfect ones in Ephesus. To the holy ones in Ephesus. In Ephesus, I don't know where your mind goes, but a part of my mind wonders, did he make a mistake? Maybe he's starving in prison and the guy's delusional by now, just randomly making up stuff. Maybe he said the wrong thing to this audience. 
Kind of like when, when I call my wife's mom, when I call Annette's mom every now and then, and, and, and she'll pick up, she'll go, oh, hi. And, and, and she never gets my name right on the first time. You would think after seven years of being married to your daughter, she would go, oh, Annette, Sharon, Crystal, Lucy, Stan. And those of you that don't know her family, that's all of her sisters, and Lucy's their dog. And she will go through every name before she gets to Stan. And so maybe Paul's having a mother-in-law moment at this, at this time. Maybe he's just rambling names without figuring out who this audience is, but he's not. He writes in the Greek hagios, very specific to the holy, righteous, perfect ones in Ephesus. Why? Why? You see, the reason I struggle with that is because this idea of sainthood Depending on your background and tradition, this idea of sainthood was always meant to be difficult. For those of you that come from the Catholic tradition, you know that when you call someone a saint, they've made it. They've made it. Like, there's a handful of them out of 6.5, 7 billion people. Like, they are the cream of the crop. And I still remember... After uh, Princess Diana died in 1997, August 31st, I remember a day before her funeral, I remember history here, but there was someone from, from, from India who also died. It was a woman named Mother Teresa of Kolkata. And fittingly to her life, she would die under the shadows of the Princess of Wales because she was not a woman that wanted the spotlight. And I remember after she died, there were calls to make her a saint. There was one problem. In order to start the process of sainthood under the Catholic tradition, you would have to wait 50 years after you die. And so though there was a lot of pressure to make her a saint, they couldn't immediately. So John Paul II changes the rules, and they make it just after five days changed And Mother Teresa was one of the initial forces as to why they changed the rules. And instead of waiting 50 years, you can just wait five years to start the process of canonization. Now, I don't know if you know anything about what that process looks like, but I'm going to just maybe give you the cliff notes version of it. After five years, the person dies. It is the job of the local bishop of the area to begin to investigate this person that they are trying to bring towards sainthood and send the information back to the Vatican. All of his findings, everything documented down on paper, interviewing the local people of the city of Kolkata, and they would send it back to the Vatican. After this information is sent to the Vatican, a panel of theologians will gather together And the cardinals of the congregation for the cause of sainthood would come together and begin to look at the investigative findings of this local bishop. And now these men of power and authority in the Vatican will begin to investigate. If the panel approves, the Pope will proclaim this candidate to be a role model of Catholic virtue, which simply means that this candidate, in the case Mother Teresa, is able to go to the next step, the one step before canonization, beatification, which is at that moment, because they can attribute a miracle to her post-death, 
a miracle after she dies. Not while she's just living, but after she dies, a miracle is performed in her name. She is given the title Blessed, not Saint Mary. She's not Blessed Mother Teresa of everyone. She's just simply Blessed Mother Teresa of Kolkata. She's a figure among the local people living in the city of Kolkata, someone to revere, someone to honor, someone to look to. And after a second miracle is found, the process of canonization begins where she is now given the title of saint. Saint Teresa. Now, all of this, while it's going on, there is someone who plays the role of devil's advocate, trying to find any reason why this person should not be made saint If that was the process that Paul was using, and it wouldn't be to the saints in Ephesus, it would maybe be to the serpents in Ephesus, would it not? Like, like if that was the process. And we can look at this Catholic traditional process of how do you become a saint? And we can say, wow, that's just so hard. I, and, and it makes sense as to why the word saint is so heavy and so terrifying. But the truth is, you might not be Catholic this moment, but all of us do follow some process of how we define saint. And we enter into what I believe are two mistakes that this text is going to fight against. The first mistake is this. That for me to be a saint, I am a saint because of my righteousness, because of my actions, because of my goodness, because I read the Bible, because I prayed, because I gave money to the poor. That we weigh the sainthood on our actions that I am a saint. And we, we hear that. I'll, I'll hear it when I'll be at a restaurant with Annette and Sophia will be sitting there and she'll be not making a noise for about just two minutes and someone will walk by and say, oh, your daughter's a saint, of which she'll reply with food chucked to her face, right? Like that, that's usually what happens just to embarrass us. Oh, she's a saint. Oh, you're a saint. What, 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 what's the thinking behind that? Your behavior your modus operandi is one of who can figure out and do life perfectly. That's, that's the first mistake. We're going to see why. The second mistake is what I call the Tolstoy mistake, which is this. A man who hated organized religion, thought Christianity was the bane of the world, but loved the idea of Jesus. And he said, Jesus is a role model all men should follow, particularly when it came to his point of view of nonviolent resistance. And this is what I call the Tolstoy mistake because we will say, okay, if righteousness isn't just me trying to do random goodness, then it's me trying to follow the pattern of some goodness. And for many of us that are Christians this morning, we believe sainthood is, what would Jesus do? WWJD, remember this, remove this and I can do it now, right? When you're faced with temptation, what would Jesus do? Well, I'll just remove this and I can do it now, right? That's, that's, what, we would, that's what we would say to ourselves. Like, this person, this figure, 
that I'm watching, I just want to follow in his footsteps. And sainthood is just try to look like that guy. There's a problem with both of these, and this is the problem. Paul will argue for us in this book, Ephesians 3, go ahead, try that. But he says, for there is no one who is righteous, no, not one, for no one seeks after God, Romans 3. He goes on to say in Ephesians 2 that we are all dead in our sin. And guess what? We love the wrong that we do. He'll say in Romans 7 that we know what is right, but yet we keep doing what is wrong, though we know it to be wrong. We slander, though we know it's wrong. We gossip, though we know it's wrong. We'll lie, though we know it's wrong. We'll cheat, though we know it's wrong. Because our identity is so anchored in the way others see us that we love the feeling of pretending we have everything together. He says we know it's wrong, and yet we do it anyway. Romans 8, he'll go on to say that our minds are hostile to God. Isaiah 64, that even our good deeds are like filthy rags. Translation, even if I wanted to be like Christ, I can't. Even if I tried, I would come infinitely short of the standard set by Jesus. That even if I made a decision, which I know we all have, January 1, I'm going to read my Bible this year. How's it going? We try. And yet, this is what we realize. We fall short. Paul knows that. And he looks out at the audience a bunch of people who broke their New Year's resolution. And he says to the saints, to the saints, to the perfect, to the holy, to the righteous. How can he say that? It's in the verse. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful hearers. In Christ Jesus. Translation, your perfection, your righteousness, your holiness is not in you. It's in the one you've anchored your soul on. There is only one who is holy. There is only one who is righteous. There is only one who is perfect. And that is Jesus Christ. And because your identity is rooted in him, you and I are now counted as perfect, as righteous, as saints. Hear me. This is important. To be a Christian is not to think that one day you will be holy that one day you will be righteous, that one day you will be made perfect. To be a Christian is to know that right now, in the present, I am counted as righteous. I am counted as holy. I am counted as a saint. And the reason that's so hard is this. Listen, you got your job We could argue theology later. You got your job because at least you'll say you killed the interview. 
You got your spouse or the person you're dating because you said the right words and you wore the right cologne and your smile is perfect and your parents gave you dimples. I can get that, I get that, it's, it's you. Or you've got money in the bank because you worked hard and you, you worked overtime and you took the extra shift. But you are holy, not because of you, but because of someone else. In this case, because of Jesus Christ. And so if you hear nothing else, I want you to hear this. Your identity in Christ as a saint is not achieved. It is received. If you hear nothing else from my heart this morning, your identity in Christ as holy and righteous is not achieved. It is not meritorious. It is not how much, you, how much you strive to get there. It is received. How is it received? And it's in the words of the Apostle Paul, right after he says that, verse 2, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, unmerited favor, Peace, a calmness of my soul. You see, if sainthood is dependent on you, then he wouldn't say grace and peace. He would say work and fear. Be afraid. Work hard. But yet, he starts off this letter with two words, grace and peace. Grace, unmerited. Nothing that I did to gain. And so how did I become a saint? Well, first, God had to deal with my sin. And how does God kill my sin without killing me? He takes it on himself. You see, at the heart of our Christian faith is the cross. And the cross is the words of grace screaming out to you and I. You could not do what he has done. You could not live the perfect life, but he has lived. And our anchor is in the one who is perfect. He dies my death. But then how do I have peace from that? The gospel isn't just Christ dies, but he rises again. That on the cross, he takes my sin, my shame, my condemnation, but in the resurrection, he now lives in me. Hear me. He now lives in me. All of his perfection, all of his goodness, all of his holiness now resides in me. And now when the Father looks at me, I shine the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. In Christianity, it's called justification, just as if I didn't do it. That every time I sin, what stands in the way of my sin is this glory of Christ that says, your sins are forgiven, I remember them no more. My identity isn't just in a God who says I'm his, but at the cost of his life, he makes me his. And when I stand here and wonder why, 
Why did he do that? This is the only answer I get from the 14 verses we read. And that's why we read 14 verses. In love, he predestined you. In love, he adopted you as sons and daughters. In love, he forgave you. In love, the Apostle Paul says, as to why he did it, not because we figured out life, but just because he loved us. And so this is what it means that when you become a Christian, all of Christ, all of his perfection is imputed onto you. It's not, it's imputed phase by phase as you get older, but all that he is, all of his beauty, all of his majesty, all of his perfection, his love, his peace, his kindness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his meekness, his self-control, imputed onto you right now, this very moment as a Christian. And that flies into the face of world religion, doesn't it? Because you don't strive for moksha, though we're told to. You don't strive for nirvana, though we're told to. You don't obey Ten Commandments to get to God, though we're told to. You don't follow five pillars so you can be in the presence of Allah because we're told to. But instead, you look at the one who could do what you could not, who obeyed what you could not, who lived the way you could not. And now he lives in you. And what makes me a Christian is not who I am, but who is in me, the Christ, the hope of glory. So what does that mean for us practically? And this is where I land. How do I make sense of me being a saint today? Number one, you don't walk in this relationship with God to perfection. You walk from perfection. There are two ways you can see change happen in your life. And for many of us, we are striving towards sainthood, just working our way to God, and he's saying, stop, stop. You're my kid. Nothing can change that. And if you want to live out holy, live it from the place of knowing you are already holy. You are already holy. I don't have to be Indian. I am Indian, and everything I'm going to do naturally is to constantly bargain prices. Listen, that's just who I am. I can't, I can't fight it. I don't bargain prices to be Indian. I bargain prices because I am Indian. That's where we start. You don't try to do good to be good. You do it now because you are good. You are perfect. That's number one. Number two you no longer walk in shame and condemnation. Christian, can I ask you this morning, do you find guilt weighing you down? Shame stopping you from knowing a God who seeks for you to know him more? Do you find yourself beating yourself up? Hear me, you are not a sinner. You are You are not a sinner. You are a saint. And some of us need to look in the mirror, square our shoulders, 
and speak to the condemnation that finds its way into our soul, that makes us believe the lie that God rejects us, that we are worthless, that there is no hope. We need to be able to say, I am a saint, perfect and righteous in Christ Jesus. That's number two. Number three, when you realize that you are no longer a sinner but a saint, you now have the ability to fight the good fight. For many of us here this morning, we are just, we, it feels like we're fighting the same devils from when we were five. And we don't feel like we can overcome it. We don't feel like we can ever get through it. And there are two ways as a pastor I can, I can encourage you to it. I can say, you don't want to keep messing up. You don't want to go to hell because of it. Or I can say, don't you see? You're accepted in Jesus. You're free. The gates of hell are locked from the inside, not the outside. That now as a Christian, you are empowered by his spirit that lives in you to look at the thing that says, I am master over you and what I do. I am not defined I'm a saint. I am not defined by what I do. I am not defined by where I work. I am not defined by what I make. I am a king's kid. I am defined by a God who laid down his life to call me his. The next thing, the final thing is this. It creates Christian humility. What do I mean by that? If I told you this morning you had to achieve sainthood, it is very crushing. And if you do kind of make any progress in life, we become some of the most arrogant, pompous jerks. But if I told you this morning you did nothing to be his kid, you did nothing to be found perfect, do you know what it does? It melts your soul. That I'm going to have an eternity with God because of him and not me. And that makes us some of the most generous, humble, humblest people in the world. Can I ask you this morning, has arrogance found its way in your Christian dogma? Kill it. Kill it with recognizing how you've been made a saint. How Christ has made you whole. I'll say this. There are many of us here this morning that say, Stan, I hear it, I get it. My, my identity is rooted in Christ, and I'm a saint because of that. But you just don't under, this is what I've got to face tomorrow. If you find yourself running back to something other than Christ, then I'm going to ask you to forgive me as I say this. We've not understood what it means to be in him. And this is why I love identity crisis moments that we face. It is God's way of ripping up what we've trusted. If you've hit rock bottom, my pastor would always say, that's a good thing. Because that's when you'll know who the true rock on the bottom is. If, you faced, if you're facing hell right now, don't run from it. Let it be God's way of showing you what it means to be anchored in him to be trusted in him. Translation, let it be God's way of mufasaing your life and saying, remember who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
Thank you for this morning. Thank you for calling us sons and daughters in you. This morning we stand on this glorious truth. In Christ we are saints. I pray that truth would be real for me. That I stand holy and righteous and perfect. Help me to walk from that place of righteousness. Help me to feel the weight of my actions just lift off me and allow me now to walk in holiness, walk in perfection. We thank you. We give you the praise. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen.